Aloha, everyone. On behalf of Domino's Hawaii, we wanted to take a moment to thank our team members for working through these trying times. And we wanted to thank our community for not just supporting us, but most importantly, supporting each other amid this climate of change and continued uncertainty. It is difficult to fathom some of the recent tragedies that have occurred, but what we can do collectively is aspire to be better for one another. We don't want to disrupt this message by taking time to promote some meaningless special. All that can be found on our website or app. Instead, once again, mahalo for your strength and your character. And we look forward to our very special community here in Hawaii getting back to work and making the world a better place. And with that, let's talk sports. Hey, Jordan, what's up? Back with you. Let's warm things up. Our little pregame ritual. The Patriot, no way. Eight members of the New England Patriots have opted out of the upcoming season, by far the most of any team so far. Among them, you have prominent linebacker Dante Hightower, safety Patrick Chung, starting right tackle Marcus Cannon. Uh, Bill Belichick has publicly expressed his support for the players in this decision, which is, of course, the righteous maneuver. But it makes you think, because it's Bill Belichick and we give him so much of the benefit of the doubt because he's the mad genius, is this just part of a greater plan devised by Billy B himself? Only with the Patriots, right? Only the Patriots, we would think, oh, there's something more at play here. There's something more than guys just, you know, maybe taking health as a priority. Because uh, these are some important guys, Dante Hightower, Patrick Chung. I mean, those are key components of what was a historically good defense last year. Marcus Cannon on an offensive line that, that has gone through some troubles. We know that. Uh, so, of course, this is going to raise some eyebrows. Eight guys, who knows? It could be more uh, by the time we actually get to playing football games if we do it all. But, of course, if it's Bill Belichick, we're going to think that there is a scheme going on, whether it's slyly recording an opponent's sideline, whether it's you know, recording walkthroughs before the Super Bowl. Bill's always up to something. He's playing chess while everybody else is playing checkers. Uh, so, of course, something's up here. Right? I, I don't know what it is. I don't know exactly. Is it tanking to go get Trevor Lawrence or something like that? I don't know if they're going to be that bad. I don't think so, especially after signing uh, Cam Newton. But uh, there's, there's, always something, there's always something brewing in Foxborough. Yeah, but Bill Belichick's not issuing out compliments and support publicly all that often. And so for him to do so sort of <laughs> blankly, uh, I think just automatically raises an eyebrow or two. But to be honest, in, in most of these situations, these are players who have either young children or are expecting children here in the very near future. And so it's understandable. I think there's a legitimacy and justification to just about every one of these decisions. But as you mentioned, it's the Patriots. And so we always think something is up. Something is amiss. And wouldn't it be if there was a coach who would conjure up a plan uh, to take advantage of this COVID situation to better their position in the upcoming draft with guys like Trevor Lawrence available, it would be Bill Belichick. All right, time to welcome everybody to another episode of Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley and uh, excited about the guests that we have here on this show from inside the NBA bubble. We'll be talking with Andrew Greif. He's a good friend of our show going back to our early days on Maui radio. Uh, he is an LA times reporter covering the Los Angeles Clippers. Uh, and we were talking with him back when he was covering Marcus Mariota at Oregon when he was with the Oregonian. And so his career has obviously continued to rise. And here he is finding himself in a position where he covers a franchise that is absolutely every bit of a legitimate 
world championship contender. So uh, he always is gracious with his time. One of our favorite dudes to talk to. Uh, and he gives us the straight dope. So we'll play that in a little bit. Yeah, if you want your team to have success, ask for Andrew Greif to be your beat reporter. Uh, whether he was covering the Ducks, now he's covering the Clippers. Uh, he's been around some really, really good squads with some high star power. Uh, and one of the nicest dudes in the industry and uh, excited to talk to him from the bubble, man. We're getting, we're getting all kinds of access into the That's bubble. Right. That's right. We had uh, Bobby Webster just a couple of episodes back, GM for the Raptors. Now we have the beat writer for the Clippers from inside the bubble. Uh, and we're getting it from all facets because I imagine Andrew's experience in the bubble might differ slightly from an executive with the <laughs> defending world champion franchise. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what their experiences are like, comparatively speaking. Let's get into our game time discussion and a positive test, which isn't so positive under the circumstances. A University of Hawaii football player has tested positive for COVID-19. The player had been in self-isolation since last week after he reported symptoms during mandatory screening that is performed prior to each team organized workout, but it has again moved back the opening or at least scheduled opening of training camp it was supposed to be late last week then that got moved to monday morning which is when we are recording this episode then it was moved to tomorrow so we'll see if it does in fact open uh, tomorrow but how much of a concern is this to this point just one player testing positive uh, they say that they are putting the players through weekly tests and at least as far as they know no other players or members of the staff or members of uh, any service to the program have tested positive so how much of a concern is this one positive test Jordan I think moderate for now right I mean you, you obviously don't want to have any positive tests the odds are there there were going to be some uh, if they can contain it, if they can isolate it, then, then great. The, the last thing you want is obviously for further tests to come back, for it to spread a bit. All of a sudden, you got to shut things down, especially on the precipice of training camp. They don't play for quite a while till the end of September, so there is a lot of time leading up. Um, but for now, I, I think it's moderate, right? You have to take the proper action. You have to take the proper precautions to prevent it from going further, I think, as much of a concern, if not more, just the pure number of cases in the state, especially on Oahu in general, amongst the greater public, because it's not like these guys are isolated in a bubble or something like that, right? There, there can be contact with those off of campus, especially players living off of campus, um, and just the, the sheer number of cases around the state, and, and as I mentioned on Oahu, might be even more of a concern uh, as they try to keep the players safe within that environment, let alone just amongst the team itself. Yeah, I think this is something that you anticipate, right? I mean, this is why you set up all of the provisions that you set up to try to fight against the circumstances surrounding this pandemic. Uh, it is to be able to handle positive tests in as efficient a manner as possible. And so this will test, frankly, the, the setup and the structure that the University of Hawaii has created around this football program. So I think that they feel seemingly somewhat confident about it because they moved training camp back merely one day just so that they could get all their ducks in order, make sure that they have those provisions in place, uh, perhaps provide one more uh, day to be able to thoroughly, you know, efficiently test all of, of the players before they enter training camp. Uh, and so, yeah, this is just going to be basically uh, a, a measurement of where the University of Hawaii is as it pertains to being able to build a structure around this thing uh, to provide a safe atmosphere for these players for this program moving on pac 12 players they ain't playing 
Uh, possibly at all because of a threatened boycott. Yes, a collection of Pac-12 football players penned a letter to the Players' Tribune threatening to opt out of fall camp and gain participation unless their demands for fair treatment, safety regulations, and concerns over racial justice for college athletes are met by the conference. The athletes are asking the conference to form a permanent civic engagement task force to address social injustice issues, as well as an annual Pac-12 Black College Athletes Summit with at least three athletes from every school in the conference. In addition, the letter says the group wants the conference to direct 2% of conference revenue to support financial aid for low-income Black students, community initiatives, and development programs for college athletes on campus. There is also a request for the conference to basically allot 50% of its overall revenue for college athletes. And, and that's where it gets a little bit murky and, and maybe a little vague as far as how that distribution is supposed to take place. But this has become an even bigger and, and perhaps more controversial story in light of something that involves a former University of Hawaii football coach, Nick Rolovich, now at Washington State in the Pac-12, because according to reports yesterday, he cut multiple players from the team that were supporting this, what is known as unity effort. But Washington State officials have since said nobody was actually cut from the program. But there is a recorded phone call, go figure, uh, from a conversation between Rolo and wide receiver Cassidy Woods in which Rolovich tells Woods that his support of the unity movement would be an issue and would change how things go in the future for everybody, at least at our school. Now, uh, the full story and background is Woods was informing Nick Rolovich by phone that he was opting out of the upcoming season, as is his right and prerogative amid the concerns over the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, but then Rolo asked him about this unity effort and asked if he did support it. And that kind of changed the tone of the conversation. Uh, Woods said he wanted to continue to work out with the team while remaining on scholarship, which is uh, not allowed. You can remain on scholarship if you opt out, but you're not supposed to be able to participate in team activities. Uh, and so that part, I think, may have sounded worse than what it really was. But Nick Rolovich was seemingly critical of this notion by a collection of Pac-12 athletes to sort of move in this general direction, which includes threatening a boycott for better working, quote unquote, circumstances. Jordan, what do you make of this look and the optics of this surrounding Nick Rolovich? Yeah, I actually listened to the recording. It was online. I, I believe it's been since taken down. Uh, there might be some legalities uh, that come with that phone recording. I don't believe that Rolo anticipated or knew that he was being recorded. Um, the, the optics of it, the look of it, I mean, it's not good, right? Um, and, and that narrative is already out there. And, and just the, the quick questioning or the quick warning, right? I mean, that can be interpreted in so many different ways uh, when it comes to this unity movement. Um, because the, the, the fact of the matter, I mean, it really could change the landscape of college athletics. I don't know if that's what Rolo was getting at. Right. I, I don't know what this means in terms of NCAA eligibility, how that's going to be factored in. Right. This is a conference um, standalone conference. It isn't an NCAA wide um, revamping potentially. So there, there are a lot of things that go into that. I get that. And, and maybe that's what Rolo was trying to, to warn against. I don't know. Um, but it doesn't look good, right? Especially with the way that was interpreted potentially by Woods and, and his, his parents who were quoted in a, in a Dallas area newspaper article. So it, it's, it's, um, it's something that I think is going to be taken 
Um, and it is something that is going to really, really turn a lot of people off, right? Um, just because we are so early into this. We are, it, there are so many unknowns. Uh, there are so many details that are yet to be worked out and, and some numbers that people will pull out of this, whether it's the 50% revenue or it's the, the asking for pay cuts from, from Larry Scott on down, the commissioner of the Pac-12 conference on down. Like there are things people are going to latch onto without, I think, looking and listening to the big picture and the big message. Um, and so for a coach to comment this early, even if he thought it was privately uh, on a private phone conversation, if that gets out, that's going to be a tough look, right? Because unless it comes with a wholesale endorsement, any sort of pushback or any sort of caution against it, uh, that early, that soon after this was put out there by the unity movement in the Players' Tribune um, isn't going to be received well. And, and that's going to be a bad look, um, regardless of what exactly the extent to which Rolo um, was either warning against, some have taken it as a threat against, right, in terms of roster spots and things like that, how Washington State uh, looks at it. But it, it, it's a tough look. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to project this concern and care for the student athlete, which has always been a narrative of both the NCAA and the powers that be within the respective conferences. And then for there to be a sentiment of, oh, you want to boycott? Bye-bye. And that doesn't seem to necessarily coalesce with the previous narrative. And so I do think that that is a rough look for Rolo just because of, like you said, that initial prompted response. I, I think this is one of those situations, as unrealistic as some of these requests may seem, certainly on the surface level, uh, I think that the, the primary objective is to stir up conversation. And so I think from Rolo's perspective and other people in positions of authority, it has to be met with, all right, let's talk about this, as opposed to we're going to have a problem here if you support this movement, when we don't even really fully understand the depths of what this movement represents. Uh, but this is always the issue, right? And this is partly why the NCAA is succumbing to pressures to change its set of guidelines and rules as far as compensation for players and their ability to make money off of their likeness, image, all of that stuff. When you have this enormous bubble of amateurism inside several layers of capitalism, I always talk about this, uh, you're going to introduce problems when everybody on the periphery can make oodles and oodles of cash. I think that you're going to have a problem when your labor force is not also benefiting to that degree. And so that's just the financial side of it. But we're also at a, at a very interesting time in our history uh, where we are looking at race and racial injustices in a whole new light. And young people, collegiate student athletes, are actually feeling empowered when it comes to these kinds of discussions and conversations. And they are realizing their worth. Like, yeah, you know, we are student athletes, but at the same time, we are the labor force. And in many instances, we are the driving force of this industry. We are the superstars of this multi-billion dollar business that has been built on the backs of generations of, of tremendous student athletes. And so uh, I think them identifying that is fascinating to me. Uh, I don't know exactly where it's going to lead, but I think a conversation is certainly something that needs to take place. I don't think the immediate denial of it and the, the attempt to stamp it out is, as you mentioned, a very good look. And I'm with you on the, the bigger message, right? Because we, it would take a long time to go litigate all of the, the demands, as the player unity movement put it. But the fact of the matter is they're in a position where they have more agency more than ever. Jay Williams mentioned it, wanted to credit him on get up. But basically, 
the labor of these players is magnified more than ever because the only conferences and only programs that are trying to keep this going are programs that make money off of football to fund all these other programs. It's the money reason, right? And And I think there's no denying that. So if you're in a position as a player, why not ask for what you want? Because you have that leverage. You are very aware that they need you to play football for them to make money. And so at that point, why not ask for more, right? And, and I'm not saying that they should or will get all of the stuff that they asked for, but why not ask for financial impact as well as trying to make a difference on the social justice side? I understand where they're coming from. All right, well, we move on to some triumph on behalf of a couple of Hawaii athletes. The duo of Triborn and Trevor Crabb won the AVP Porsche Cup this past weekend. Uh, Born, an alum of the Academy of the Pacific, played volleyball at Marinal, also USC, had previously battled an autoimmune disease for two years. So after 2015, he went like two years without playing beach volleyball, without exercising. He got his first career win since 2015. Trevor, meanwhile, the Punahou and Long Beach State alum had guaranteed a victory in the event last Wednesday on social media and they upset the top seeded duo of Phil Dahlhauser and Nick Lucena. Uh, They also defeated the team that included Trevor's brother Taylor so that was interesting but how cool was that overall story to see these two guys teaming up for Trevor Crabb who is uh, one of the more outspoken members of the entire AVP tour. How cool was that? This is one of the best stories going right now right that I think not a lot of people are aware of. Yeah, Trevor's as big a character as you could hope for, which I think is great for the tour. Uh, it's two Hawaii guys. Uh, Trevor Bourne's return after all that he had to go through, especially now, right? Uh, I mean, you're talking about an autoimmune um, deal that he had to come back from and has made his way back to playing during the middle of a pandemic. Uh, these guys go out there and win. It's two Hawaii guys. It's a reminder of just how much volleyball talent exists in these islands. Uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, and, you know, Taylor was one of the guys that had to go down. But uh, Trevor guaranteeing the win, Joe Namath style, and then going out there and backing it up. Uh, that's the stuff I live for, man. That's, that's, that's the bravado that you love. Uh, and, uh, again, it's two Hawaii guys. This is great stuff. Uh, I'm glad to see the AVP persevering through. Um, great product and uh, just a just a terrific story. And uh, maybe Trevor's going to guarantee a next tournament win as well. We'll see. Yeah, he made the guarantee a little more colorful than Joe Namath because his uh, caption under the Instagram post where he guaranteed victory was, I guarantee bleeping it. Uh, but yeah, you knew that he was going to feel confident. The event took place in Long Beach. That's where he played his college volleyball. Uh, but yeah, it was really just cool to see. And, and you're right, the impact of, of Hawaii, sort of the Hawaii influence on volleyball uh, on the AVP tour, it was actually on full display. Not only did this Hawaii duo win the event, you mentioned, you know, some of the other players who are in these tournaments week after week. And then you had Kevin Wong on the call for uh, the broadcast, which was aired on uh, Amazon's Prime Video app. So, yeah, it was Hawaii all over the place. Hawaii volleyball, loud and proud for sure. All right, time to get to our Domino's Hawaii main topping, and it is our interview with Andrew Greif, L.A. Times writer covering the Los Angeles Clippers. He is in the bubble, one of our favorite dudes to talk to. So without further ado, let's play you that interview with our man Andrew Greif. All right. What's up, Andrew? It's great to uh, be able to talk with you and see you at the same time uh, because of the fact that we're uh, doing this interview via Zoom. So uh, that's pretty cool. You look great. Look like you're uh, living the best life possible inside the bubble. What's it been like? Uh, it is uh, honestly the heart. Once you're here, it's it's been pretty smooth. And um, 
everything's worked pretty well. The NBA's kind of their their guidelines they've set up and their protocols have made everything easy on my end. The hardest part for me was getting on the plane to come out here because, you know, it's just that was my first plane ride since March 11th. And so the day that season shut down and I just didn't know what to expect. And you're obviously wary about every surface that is out there. So that was kind of a mental hurdle for me. But once I've been here, it has been, um, I feel like this has been gone pretty well. You know, the NBA has sought out pretty much every, every last detail. And so from, from how often I get tested to the shuttle ride, to the arenas, to on and on and on and on where I get my food. Um, I feel like I'm not having to, um, yeah, kind of struggle to figure out any of the details, which is what you want. You want to focus on the game, right? You want to focus on your story. And that's been taken care of. That's really cool. Yeah, we had Bobby Webster, the GM for the Raptors on with us a couple of episodes ago. And so he was kind of giving us the lowdown on what it's like, but that's from his vantage point. Uh, so from the perspective of a media member, uh, what kind of organization, what, what other kinds of things do, uh, you alluded to it a little bit, but what other kinds of things are set up for you as far as, as being able to do your job and, and, and kind of have that at least relative closeness to the team? Yeah, it's so there's a there's a good distinction. This is a good time to mention it that there are about 10 or 12 journalists who live on the Disney property and they have been there since July 8th, I believe. And they get to go talk to players before the game and after the game and coaches in person, you know, from a social distance. They everyone wears masks, um but they're tested every day and they are living essentially uh like across a lake from where the top teams, the hotel where they're staying. So they are in the bubble all the time. They do not leave. Um, my situation is I'm in what's called tier two, which means I can watch games in person and I have to get tested and test negative to be able to watch games in person. Um, but when I go to a game, I sit a little bit higher in the arena just physically. So I'm, I, I'm farther away from the court. And then all my interviews happen over zoom. I do not get any in-person access. And when it's done, I go back to a hotel that is technically just outside of the bubble. So um, I am I am kind of out in Florida, general Florida right now, and I'm trying my best to uh, remove myself from as many people as I can to protect myself from, you know, obviously catching the virus. Um, but uh, it's, again, you know, tested Tuesdays and Fridays. That process is made very easy by the NBA. I get my test back within about 24 hours. Um, once I'm in the arena, it's just a very odd experience because there are so few people there that I'm used to a, a packed press row. And now it's maybe one or two people that I'm, that I'm next to at a game. Um, like, for example, the, the first game of the season, the Lakers and Clippers game in October, there were, I want to say, more than 300 media members credentialed for that game. And Thursday, there were maybe maybe 20 in the building uh so it's just an odd a very odd situation all around but when you're in it um all of a sudden you realize you're watching basketball and it's some level of normalcy kind of returns yeah i was kind of curious to ask you andrew about about that game um on thursday and then of course the clippers playing yesterday as well on sunday uh just the game atmosphere, uh, how the players have sort of reacted to that, how, how it was from your vantage point. You kind of touched on that a little bit, but, but what was it like and how did it compare to, to what you expected if, if you expected anything, right, with all the unknown going into one of these games? It's, so it's, it's both the most 
normal thing you ever experienced and the oddest thing because uh, it's like watch you know I've covered now probably 150 Clippers games um, in, in my two years on the beat so at a certain level you know you come a little bit desensitized to the experience of a professional basketball game in an arena right uh, and so this is like this experience has been like watching a game uh, through different eyes almost because you just realize you take in everything that is different all the contrast from the lack of fans to the lack of noise during certain situations, like during free throws, when the pumped in crowd noise, which is already not extremely loud. It's not like it's over the top, but that when that kind of fades away in certain situations, it just becomes a very, very quiet gym. And all you can hear are sneaker squeaks and a player from the opposing bench yelling shooter to kind of distract uh, a player at the free throw line. Um, but then you have these, you know, these bright video boards, which make it look like it's almost being played on a TV soundstage or inside a video game. Um, it's, it's a really weird thing to see again, this thing that I've, I've known so well, but in these circumstances for the first time, it feels different in a lot of ways. I think the players, they have said that they all the kind of the extra stuff happening around them, the stuff that I notice more, the video boards, the graphics, the visual fans, they say that fades kind of, kind of from their from what's in front of their mind. Now they're just thinking about their man, you know, the actual game itself, the action. Um, but when you're in the building, you can't help but notice all the other things that are going on around it. And it truly is, uh, this is an, an understatement. It's unlike anything I've seen before watching a basketball game. Yeah. It's so interesting, right? You get some of the sounds you're used to from like a men's league rec game on Sunday afternoons at the park gym or something like that, but it's, it's NBA players. Uh, you, you touched on a little bit of how the players have, adapted to the the on-court experience what's what's the sense you get from players just about everyday life in the bubble and and how they're adapting and and how they've been receptive to what the NBA has put in place Paul George the Clippers was asked that um about uh, over the weekend I want to say it was Saturday and you know he's been there now for more than three weeks you know that adjustment time is kind of over and he was asked does it still feel like you're living in a bubble he goes oh yeah it does you know like players aren't losing sight that they are on a closed campus and they cannot leave um, unless they have, you know, obviously personal reasons, but then they're going to have to re-quarantine. So uh, they, they know that this is an awkward, almost like a Truman show production happening where it's just, you know, you're, you're stuck and you can't, and there's golf and there's boating and there's fishing. And there's lots of ways to take your mind off of it, but I don't think anyone loses sight that this could be going on for, you know, the, the, the elite teams that, want to play into the finals this could be going on until October and you have to realize that families aren't scheduled to arrive until after the first round of the playoffs and so that's like late August um, so yeah it's uh, I think that players have found it to be more relaxing than they expected and more uh, like more stuff to do there's movies happening there's different social events um, and it is a fairly large campus they can walk around but it's also you know you just know that it's like a gilded prison in a lot of ways. You know, and ironically, it has been the Clippers who have had some stories of players who have had to leave for various reasons. And of course, the big hullabaloo that was made uh, out of Lou Williams going to eat dinner uh, at an establishment that uh, I guess uh, under other circumstances is more known for some of the adult entertainment that accompanies some of that really good food, apparently. Uh, What did you make of that and sort of how much was made about Lou Williams in that situation? Well, I don't think you can deny that it was probably poor judgment to go there um, just because you have to realize that although even if, you know, 
the, the wings are named after you, as they are for Lou Williams. They're called the Lou Will Lemon Pepper Wings. You have to understand how it will be viewed. And it truly was an optics problem. You know, you can't have the league spending more than $150 million staged the most comprehensive, you know, protective environment it can. And then to have someone go to a gentleman's club, um, even if it is for the food, as he said, um, that, that still is going to bring into question, well, how seriously are they taking it? You know, what, what is this? Are people really respecting the bubble? So that is why uh, the combination of it, it's the establishment, its own fame, you know, it's in pop culture, it's in songs, um, it's in movies. So that one, that combination of fame and just the idea of the league has been so detailed about keeping that bubble intact that the idea that someone might, you know, not respect it or flout it, um, that was obviously going to be a problem. So the optics of it were, were not good, but he could be, he could be out and playing as quickly as Tuesday when they play the Phoenix Suns. Do you get a sense that any of that can serve as a legitimate threat to this team as far as being a distraction? Or do you kind of get the sense that, you know, so many of these players are more experienced and have sort of been there, done that, that these kinds of things, while being a story for the people on the periphery and the, the outside looking in, for them, it's, it's really not a big deal? I think because of the timing of his departure, it wasn't a big deal. You know, if he had left during the playoffs and his quarantine, which was supposed to be four days, became 10 days, and that, you know, in those six, six days, you know, you could lose potentially three games in the playoff series. Um, the fact that this was just the opening part of the seeding round, which, you know, the Clippers are in pretty good position to hold on to their, their two seed. I don't, um, obviously they have not locked it up yet, but I think that they are the odds on favor to hold on to that. That is why I don't think that people inside the team, there is obviously some disappointment, but I don't think from his, from his actual peers, the players themselves, don't think they were that worried about it. What's been your impression of of the team so far? Two games in, uh, one and one. They looked great yesterday uh, against the Pelicans. A little disjointed maybe in that first game back against the Lakers. But uh, what's been your impression of the level that they're at just just, uh, as this thing gets started? Well, the first impression is that Paul George, when he started in the bubble in in early July, he talked to the reporters on a Zoom call and said that he felt more confident than at any point throughout the year because his shoulders had truly – uh, healed and, and you know, he had two shoulder surgeries the year about uh, May before he joined the Clippers and he came back in November and looked fantastic to start but he said that you know just his confidence under the surface wasn't quite there physically he was probably fine but just you know there's mentally he's working back into it he said all those issues were gone when he got to Orlando and I think you're seeing that now and he made he's made 14 of 21 three-pointers so far in two games uh, the Clippers are, because they don't have Montrezl Harrell, who's their backup center, who takes you know a lot of touches in the paint. A lot of those touches are now becoming three-pointers. They're shooting a lot of three-pointers, and you're seeing Paul George thrive with that. So um, that, I think he is essentially as self-advertised, and that's been something, you know, you kind of wonder if a guy says he feels as healthy as ever, will he actually play like it? And Paul has, to his credit. Um, the basketball has been uh, better than I thought frankly you know like obviously we expected hiccups and that first half against the Lakers was was a terrible performance in a lot of ways between the fouls and just the sloppiness um the defense was not all that great either so but once you got through that I feel like the Clippers should probably be encouraged because the fact that they stayed with the Lakers 
until the final seconds of that game and then absolutely shredded the Pelicans uh, with the franchise record 25 uh, three-pointers. And they did that without Lou Williams and Montrezl Harrell, who averaged 37 points a game combined. Uh, I would take that as a pretty good sign of what their ceiling could be when they get those guys back. Yeah, you mentioned more, more three-pointers. Uh, I saw in, in your, one of your recent write-ups in the Times, um, they were shooting 37% of their shots had been three-point shots prior to the shutdown back in March. And, and since then, in their, their two games back, it's up to 51% of all field goal attempts have come from behind the arc. You mentioned the absence of Harold maybe contributing to some of that, uh, but they're shooting the lights out as well. I mean, they're up above 40% or something like that. I believe you had made note. Uh, what do you attribute? Is that something that's going to continue you think, or is that just a temporary deal with, without Harold uh, getting those paint touches? Yeah. I, I kind of feel like the, the way their, their kind of shot profile will look in the, in the weeks and months ahead, potentially when Harold does come back, will probably fit somewhere in the middle between where they're at now and where they were, uh, you know, in March when the season ended that 37% figure. I feel like they'll maybe go into the forties just because um, I asked Paul George, like after the Pelicans game, is this essentially the sign of the offense we should come to expect going forward? And, you know, that was implicit in that was, we know that Harold's coming back again. We know there'll be more buckets close to the basket, but he said, yeah, because, you think about the shooters on this team and the way they can penetrate in the lane and create open shots for those shooters that he just felt like this team was tailor-made to bomb away from three. So uh, I, I, I would expect some sort of small dip when, when Montrose comes back, but I don't think they'll go back to it to the way they were entirely. Um, I just think that their shooters right now are, um, are looking pretty good. You know, Kawhi Leonard has shot pretty well from three since the seeding rounds began. Uh, so uh you know, if now not every game is going to be the Pelicans game, but I, I really do think that they can they can ex- afford to come out and shoot a lot. You know, Montrez Harrell is such an interesting type of player. I, I heard some stat, and, and correct me if this isn't accurate, but uh, I believe Kyle Lowry is the league leader in charges taken, and I think number two is Montrez Harrell, which is kind of astounding for a center, a guy who plays that position to be that high in that category. Um, what kind of estimation do you attach to him in terms of his value both offensively and defensively for this team he, he's I mean he's such an, a fascinating character because he's an uh, unrestricted free agent this summer and he's you know he's made about six million dollars a year each of the past two years and has clearly been one of the league's best bargains in terms of pure value I don't know that you get a whole lot more value for a guy than that um, and almost like a a bucket per dollar, you know, or an effort per dollar. He is, he's really interesting because, you know, a lot of people tie his success off the bench to Lou Williams, his running mate. And for good reason, they have their pick and roll very literally is one of the most dangerous things to stop. Um, but I think we do have to separate Trez a little bit because he does, uh, has worked quite a bit to get his own, almost make himself more self-sufficient offensively. You know, he doesn't just need Lou Williams to operate. He's got some, you know, some, he's improved as a passer. He's got some nifty mid-range game where he can kind of feel more comfortable this year and, and shooting that shot if he gets a short roll off the pick and roll. And I don't – I'll be very curious to see what his free agency is like because he is someone who is um, undeniably one of the league's most improved players since the time he came into the league. Um, but, I, you know, I also think that he'll probably want a contract, you know, at least in maybe a $20 million range or something like that. and you have to realize what, what does the future look like for a six foot seven center in this league? 
um, who's so much of his game is predicated on effort. You know, can you sustain that, that level? It's almost superhuman, the, the level he plays at, the effort he plays with. Can you sustain that? And that's a really fascinating question. I think a lot of people are, are trying to figure out right now. But there is no doubt that on this team, yes, it's Kawhi Leonard's team. Yes, it's Paul George's team. But don't overlook Montrez Harrell's impact on these guys. Um, I, I think that if you to, to ignore the Patrick Beverly, Lou Williams, and Montrez Harrells of the world on this team would be a gross uh, mistake because they, they are the, the kind of hidden engines of what this whole team is. Well, in what was one of the scheduling blessings uh, bestowed upon us by the NBA with regard to this restart was the opening night, Lakers and Clippers. It's the matchup that everybody loves to see. It's a matchup that very well could be the Western Conference final matchup. Um, And obviously, Anthony Davis was able to take advantage of the absence of Montrez Harrell uh, to a large degree. He had a great game. Um, They've now played four times. Clippers won the first two. Lakers have have won the last two. Uh, It seems as though the margins are just razor thin as far as who has the edge and some of the runs within the games. Uh, So what you've observed in that matchup, uh, do you see an advantage one way or the other? How, How do you calculate what's happened between the Clippers and Lakers so far? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, they, I thought that the absence of Avery Bradley could be a real big difference. You know, he, he didn't take part in the restart. Um, he has, um, I think he's one of his a son um, has some problems with breathing. And so it was just too much of a risk. I believe that was the reasoning. Um, and, I, and I thought that he was someone who, look, he had a terrific game. He was the third best player on the court for the Lakers in March during that victory. Um, and, and he was a guy as a defensive stopper. Yes, I think he's maybe lost a step from early in his career, but he's also a, a pretty reliable option on the perimeter. And so to lose him, I thought was really important um, because of all the wing depth that the Clippers have. Um, they also lost Rajon Rondo. I, I, I honestly think that the Clippers, I mean, the Lakers might be better without Rondo and um, what they can do. But So I thought those two guys going down um, would tilt the scales toward the Clippers. And I still feel that way. I still feel like the depth is something that I am putting my, um, my, my, the, my weight of my judgment in because you know you're going to get from the superstars. You know your AD and LeBron and Kawhi and Paul George are going to produce. So what's it after that? What's, who's the X factor? And I just feel like the Clippers have more X factor type guys uh, than the Lakers can throw out there. So, I mean, I, it's kind of a cop-out answer because I still see it going seven games if it goes to West Ground. I, think, I still think it's razor thin. But um, I, I like, you know, I like the idea of a Jamichael Green who can be a, be a stretch five and stretch guys out to the perimeter uh, while still, you know, banging down low on defense. I think he's a guy who could be enormously critical in a Lakers-Clippers series. Um, you know, I think Landry Shannon, uh, the wing for the Clippers, he hasn't played a whole lot in March, and he's kind of slowly getting his role go up a little bit now. But I just think that he's one of those guys, too. If he can catch fire, um, I don't know – that the Lakers have the defense uh, on the perimeter on the second unit to maybe contain a guy like him too. Yeah, just the, the depth of these two teams. How do you expect that to, to manifest itself in a playoff series? You're only going to play five guys at a time. Rotations could be shortened. Uh, how do these teams maximize that and, and utilize that depth you, exper- you expect? Yeah, I mean, the Clippers, for all their depth, it's not like they're going to use everybody in a playoff series. So. Uh, they, they will go, I'm sure, to a shortened bench, maybe maybe eight or nine guys. So um, as much as we talk about how they can go, you know, 11 deep, 12 deep, realistically, obviously Doc Rivers is not going to go 
that deep into it. So some of their strength of depth will be mitigated a little bit just by the, you know, the shorter rotations that tend to happen in the playoffs. But uh, I, again, I just really like what they can do uh, and the variability they have both offensively and defensively and the personnel. Um, and I think they're really, we're still not quite sure sometimes what the best lineups really are with the Clippers because injuries and uh, obviously the pandemic and the midseason trades and the acquisitions of Reggie Jackson and Marcus Morris and then Joakim Noah, they have really limited the amount of time we've had this roster together, these 15 guys. So uh, this is why I think the eight games, these eight seeding games, although there, there isn't the greatest stakes in the world for the Clippers, who, who I think should be fairly safe in getting that second seed, I think you're going to see a lot of um, mixing and matching and how much can they trust Joakim Noah, who only last year had a potentially career-ending Achilles injury, and he's looked pretty good so far. Um, how much can you trust Landry Shamit, who's shooting again, has gone up and down a little bit this year. How much could you trust a guy like Rodney McGruder, who's deep down the bench, uh, or Reggie Jackson, who like, joined in February, had about two weeks, then the pandemic stops. Um, you know, he's looked promising in some ways, also made some some questionable decisions. So this is still, I think, a proving ground time for the Clippers to see when it comes crunch time, who do we trust? You know, what situations do we put them in? Um, so I think that even some of the Clippers don't quite know right now what their, you know, starting five or, or their, you know, their nine-man rotation would look like in, let's say, mid-September. I think the other interesting part of that uh, is the fact that they are playing in this bubble. And so it eliminates traditional home court advantages. And so when you're talking about the depth, as Jordan alluded to, and you're talking about role players, quote-unquote, um, these guys aren't going to necessarily succumb to some of the outside pressure that would otherwise be there when they're in a road playoff situation. So uh, I wonder if that changes the strategy a little bit where coaches can possibly find themselves relying on some of these supporting cast members a little bit more, even in crucial games or situations, because uh, this is such a unique type of, of circumstance. It was, it was absolutely um, something that had been talked about in the run-up to the bubble was guys who maybe would be more prone to choking um, or struggling in, in, a, in a road arena in that kind of pressure-packed environment. Would a neutral site eliminate that? And could you see some of those uh, practice stars, essentially, uh, maybe translate that ability to games? Um, it's, I, don't, I don't know how you quantify that in a lot of ways. You know, I think the coaches who obviously see those, those, those contrasts, however big or small they are in players' performances, they would be the best to kind of pick out you know, a, a player's performance. And, wow, okay, he's doing a little better than we thought in this situation. And maybe if they're in a game four in Houston, for example. Um, but that, was, that is something that is absolutely being talked about. And the home court advantage for the Clippers and Lakers is a big deal because this is, you know, uh, this is a, well, I say this, as I'm in Los Angeles, I'm not, but Los Angeles is a Lakers town. And even during Clippers home games, the Clippers-Lakers home games this year, those were a lot of times they sounded like a Lakers game. You know, Kawhi Leonard came out before the first game of the year. This is the, one of the most anticipated games in Clippers franchise history. It's a Clippers home game. He takes the mic to talk to the audience, and he's booed. So that's the kind of situation that probably was awaiting the Clippers in a Western Conference final, or let's just say a playoff series against the Lakers. But now they don't have to contend with that. And although the NBA is trying to, you know, come up with some sort of home court advantage with 
you know, crowd noise, maybe whatnot, the pumped in, it's, it's obviously never going to be able to replace what a, an actual angry, boisterous arena is going to be like on the road. Well, your timing is impeccable. You uh, begin to cover this Clippers team at the time where they bring in just a couple of juggernauts and put together a true championship contender type of squad. Uh, and obviously one of the uh, consensus best players in the world right now is, is Kawhi Leonard. What have you observed? What, what do you see in him? What do you think is uh, something that you can attribute to his level of performance and greatness at this stage of his career? Uh, you know, Patrick Beverly went and trained with Kawhi Leonard during the, the shutdown. He said this on the JJ Redick podcast a few weeks ago. He said that he knows a lot about hard work. You know, he basically got himself an NBA career through hard work. It wasn't because someone it was because he was a first round pick. It wasn't because he was one of the top guys at college or anything like that. Now, he had to work at it. But he said that when he went and worked out with Kawhi Leonard, he felt like he kind of got a different understanding of what hard work looked like. He said it changed his life. And he owed it to the repetition that Kawhi does. And um, I think that you see a, a small window into that during pregame warmups where he will do uh, several things, but just for several times, you know, like uh, several exercises, you know, whether it's getting to a specific spot on the floor, getting a shot up, okay, replay, over replay over replay over he does that quite a bit and I think that's ability to really fine-tune these very specific parts of his game uh that you're seeing then he puts it all together when the game time starts so he knows how to you know work that that crossover he was working on during warm-ups get to his shooting spot and he has the muscle memory to shoot it and that's something that uh Patrick Beverly was saying at least that maybe not a whole lot of guys want to do they'll do it a couple times but Kawhi apparently just you know, goes back to it and back to it and, and just works and works and works. So uh, he is someone who you, you have to say it's working because he came into the league and shooting was not one of his strengths. And now I would say that I think any coach would give him the ball in, in the final 10 seconds to win a game for, for a shot that they need. Uh, that's, that's a huge evolution and not something you could have predicted beforehand. And I think it all has to come back to clearly he's been working at this. You know, it doesn't appear as though he and LeBron really vibe all that much. I mean, there's just not a lot of pleasantries exchange. I mean, you see LeBron and Paul George kind of dapping it up a lot more. Uh, is that just more of a Kawhi thing? Like, that's just his personality. He's not very uh, open in that way or, or sort of outwardly affectionate in any way. Or, or do you feel like there might actually be a, a little bit of a, of a thing between LeBron and Kawhi? I think that there's definitely just different personalities involved, you know, like LeBron is clearly one of the most self-aware um, greatest promoters of uh, in, in sports history. And, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, like he, you could probably take a picture of him anywhere in the world and someone you could say, show him to anyone and they say, that's LeBron James, you know, like he has, he just knows how to amplify his reach in a way that is unlike any other athlete, probably in currently in sports. And, I just, you know, Kawhi, I think, again, he's more comfortable to be in that gym um, for 10 hours a day, just working out, doing whatever he's doing. Uh, that's more his style. I mean, you see, you see it just in the way that they act, even around their teammates. I mean, there's that famous uh, video from last year's NBA Finals where one of his teammates from the Raptors goes up to him to give him a fist bump, and he just, like, pointed toward the court. He didn't return a fist bump. He just was like, no, business awaits. 
uh, you know, and like LeBron is obviously a more over the top personality. One, you know, is that guy who everybody, you know, he, he's trying to bring you along for the ride when you're on his team, it seems like. So I, I just think it's two players who have arrived at similar points of, of, of their career in terms of where they stand among their peers through two completely different ways. Um, in terms of their personality, they're both maniacal workers. You know, this is, this is something that they both have in common, but once they leave the gym, um, I just think that they are, one is so ready for the spotlight and and so brilliant at capturing it. And one just really does not, uh, does not seek it at all. So what's that like from your vantage point to, to cover someone like Kawhi Leonard, right? I mean, as a reporter, you're always looking for that juicy quote. And, you know, LeBron is more than willing to provide that for the masses of, of media members who surround him at the locker. And Kawhi, as you mentioned, is just naturally more reserved. I don't think he really loves that part of being a professional superstar basketball player. So from a reporting standpoint, what's it like to cover a guy like Kawhi Leonard? Can it be at times a little bit frustrating? What is that like? I think that what I've been surprised by is that um, he gets a reputation for being obviously very disinterested in the, in the whole media side of the business. But I think when you, and I wouldn't say that's unjustified, you know, like I think that he'd rather be doing some other things, but um, when you, when he is in a press conference setting or at his locker um, in the world, as we knew it before the pandemic, I, I was, I was surprised at how much he really listens to the question and how much he really responds to it. And I think that guys who otherwise might be more um, said to be more accommodating or more like outgoing, they don't, that doesn't mean they're going to necessarily listen to your question or give you a thoughtful reason to answer. And Kawhi does listen. And, and I think that it's actually in some ways been a, a really interesting challenge because you have to ask good questions if you want good response to you. You know, you have to be pretty razor sharp with what you're trying to get. Um, I think just the kind of the blithe question or just the, you know, talk about how you did tonight. Like he's not going to really give you much for that, but uh, I have found that people who ask questions that are, you know, generally curious and not just questions for questions they already know the answers to, he really does listen. And and that's something that I guess I just, because I had no firsthand experience that I wasn't sure about. So I feel like if I'm working on a story, um, I can expect a thoughtful kind of response. Um, now I don't know what he's going to say, and he might not talk. He might not fill the air for as long as another player might might you know respond with, but he does listen and and will consider your question. Well, Andrew, it's uh, always a pleasure talking with you. Uh, we really enjoy your work, and uh, it's been fun because we've been talking to you since your days at the Oregonian, and uh, we just thank you for always being so gracious and giving us uh, so much of your time. I know you are looking forward to, as, as fun as the bubble may be, you're looking forward to getting back to your family and uh, your two kids and another one that we understand is on the way. So uh, we wish you the best with all of that, man, and, and, and thanks so much once again. Of course. I, I hope so much that we can be back in a normal basketball environment where the Clippers are holding training camp in Hawaii again. Uh, I would love that so much, but let's just hope we can get back to that sense of normalcy someday soon. Thank you so much, guys. All right. Big thanks once again to Andrew Greif. Uh, we will have much more time here as this restart plays out for the NBA to debate who's the better LA team, the Clippers or the Lakers. I'm sure that'll go back and forth for some time as we anticipate the playoff run. But it is time to get to our post-game best and worst. This is how we like to end every episode, Jordan. What is your best for this iteration of the show? 
Yeah, my, my best was just uh, the Saturday two days ago. It was such a surreal moment because the last several months, right, sports have been few and far between. And I was just kind of caught in the moment. It was like five o'clock away time. And the Cubs, my Cubs, who I've got the MLB.tv subscription. So I'm watching them on my phone. Uh, they're in the ninth inning trying to hold on to a lead. The Lakers and Raptors are on, t- uh, on TV. Uh, there was five minutes left in a close game in the fourth quarter. Uh, the, the UFC event, which you could stream on ESPN plus was heading to the main event. Uh, all these things were happening simultaneously where you had to go to like Ukrainian ping pong as recently as like two months ago, just to find any sort of live sporting competition. And it was just inundated and there were hockey games going on. There were other baseball games going on. And I just kind of paused and I was like, man, this is nice. Uh, I don't know if my, you know, if my family or anybody trying to reach me felt the same way because I was just kind of locked in my cocoon of sports fandom. But, uh, man, what a nice Saturday it was. Yeah, that was pretty darn cool. But don't knock Ukrainian ping pong, man. That, that is a fantastic sport. Some, some really, really great competitors and some of the most prolific paddle flips, which is controversial in the United States. But in Ukraine, it's definitely uh, promoted at a much higher level. All right, my best is we like to promote some Twitter accounts that have a certain entertainment value to them uh, because obviously we're all spending way more time on social media here during the pandemic. But uh, there's this Twitter account, relatively new, the 2020 Astros Shame Tour Twitter account, an account that is dedicated to shaming the Astros, obviously based on the fact that the Astros are found to be cheating and none of the players actually got punished because they were granted immunity during the investigation by Major League Baseball, all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. Uh, But they will post minute by minute lowlights of the Astros, players striking out embarrassingly bad, uh, and they'll post statistics that don't necessarily reflect well on the Houston Astros, uh, like the fact that you have the triumvirate of Springer, Altuve, and Bregman, who, at least according to yesterday's post, Springer was hitting 167, Altuve 176, Bregman 176. And their strikeout numbers are off the charts. And, you know, people are wondering what the reason for it is. Maybe they just like to feed off the crowd that's usually there. Or maybe the banging of the trash cans that uh, used to be there that aren't there here now. Maybe that actually does help. Maybe knowing what pitch is coming actually does help a hitter uh so yeah uh, kudos to 2020 astro shame tour just gave him a follow this is great stuff i, I think earl hersheiser on the dodgers broadcast just recently uh after i think it was altuve punched out he basically said huh i guess it's a little harder when you don't know what's coming <laughs> oh yeah no love lost from the dodgers that's for sure all right let's get to our worst what's your worst yeah my worst this was going to be my best up until just after halftime the fa cup final uh, in England on Saturday morning. I got up at 6.30 a.m. Hawaii time. Christian Pulisic, the American 21-year-old from Pennsylvania who is lighting it, has been Chelsea's best player amongst the best clubs in the world on a tear here uh, since the restart in the Premier League. They have a, a Champions League match coming up. Uh, he scores five minutes in on a, just a magnificent goal. Uh, and, man, it was, it was Ecstatic, ecstatic by me, you know, at 6.35 in the morning, uh, making a lot of noise. Uh, I'm sure uh, waking everybody else up in the house. Uh, and, and Chelsea's looking great. And then five minutes into the second half, he pops his hamstring uh, and is out for quite a while. He's a guy who's bad. He's, talent is undeniable. He's, he's never played better than he has this last month since they restarted playing soccer uh, over there in England. But he's always been hurt. That's his biggest um, thing holding him back and, and the hamstring injury looked like a pretty serious one. So that's, 
That's my worst. My guy Pulisic, man. I was riding high. It was going to be my best. They were, he was playing unbelievable. And then, and then it came to a screeching halt. They ended up losing the match too. That didn't help. Uh, so yeah, rough, rough goal for my guy, Christian. Yeah, that's a big time bummer. And one of the rare first to worst situations here as it pertains yeah. to our uh, best and worst post game. All right. Uh, my worst, the New Orleans Saints uh, have decided to rent out four floors of a downtown New Orleans hotel to create what they are calling a team bubble as they prepare for training camp, trying to essentially just isolate their players from some of the rest of the population there in New Orleans. The thing is, it's optional. So about 150 of the total 180 players, coaches, staff, executives, whatnot, have agreed to staying in the hotel over the next month or so. Sean Payton, the head coach, is saying that it's not a bubble so much as it's a sequester, uh, but it seems to have a lot of holes in it. I mean, if, if not everybody is doing it, then how effective is it going to be? If it's optional to begin with, then what are we really accomplishing here? So, hey, look, I give a lot of credit to the Saints. I don't think they have any positive tests to this point that we know of. Uh, but at the same time, I don't know, man. Just I do think that maybe they could utilize a couple of uh, more reliable stances as far as how to battle this thing. I'm not sure if the uh, optional hotel stay uh, is necessarily the thing that's going to get the Saints over the edge. Yeah, it's add sequester to the uh, hot button words or the words of the pandemic that have gained in uh, usage frequency. Uh, it's not a bubble. It's just a sequester canal. That's right. Just a hotel sequester. All right. That's it for us. Big thanks once again to Andrew Greif for joining us. Uh, he's always the best. We love talking with him. Until next time, Jordan, have a good one, man. See you, man.